Welcome to the Ponder a New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis. Well, we've all been there where Sunday is just simply beautiful and we sang a great hymn and we feel so good about Jesus and forgiveness and love. And then comes another manic Monday and we just feel like, ugh, and we don't really know how God connects. This fall, we're going to be looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, which get at this, uh, this tension between the awesome love and beauty of God that we often experience within the, the, live, the congregation as we worship the living Lord and sort of our, our call to discipleship and often the, the strange, rocky, barren world that, that is moral existence on, on earth, uh, sort of Monday through Saturday. So my hope is that these uh, looking at parables can help us think about ways in which uh, the Lord is at work, and we too uh, can open our hearts to have that, that bridge between Sunday and Monday uh, closed. So without further ado, let's get pondering. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, the one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's honestly strange that this parable is so compelling and convicting because the the premise is so unlike the lives that we live. I mean, not only in terms of how people dealt with crime and punishment 2,000 years ago, not only in terms of the economic relations of slaves and masters, but just the amount of money involved is so absurd. The, if you were to sort of take these currencies and compute them into modern uh, you know, U.S. dollars, it'd be something like the one owed the person $6 billion and the other only owed 30000 I mean, but the $6 billion, I mean, none of us have ever sort of ever even, you know, dreamt or, you know, come close to that kind of money, certainly not on a personal level. So there's something kind of strange that this parable resonates, yet it does, yet it does resonate. And I think the reason why it resonates is because it involves um, 
forgiveness and the power, um, the, the way in which as humans we, we can feel inspired to, out of compassion for somebody else, to forgive them for what they've done to us. Yet I think really it's the dark part of the parable that uh, draws us in, where this servant who was forgiven chooses not to forgive somebody else. Again, the one who is forgiven chooses not to forgive somebody else. And I think this really, wow, we, we know this. Um, you know, when have you seen this in life where somebody didn't pay it forward or they didn't pay it back? Like you, you gave them something and in response, they were just miserable. They weren't thankful. They weren't grateful to you or to other people, uh, or you see people that walk around and they don't acknowledge sort of the massive hand up that they've been given in life by you, by somebody else, by whatever else they have, and they look down on, on others and are hard-hearted. Again, when have you seen this uh, play itself out where people don't pay forward the grace and generosity that have been extended to them? So I think, again, what really is the haunting part and what draws us in is that, well, grace and forgiveness and compassion don't always change people. <laughs> again, grace and forgiveness and mercy, as powerful as a, even as a pastor that I want to say those forces are in the universe, they don't always change people. And this brings us to what we're going to be talking about this fall in terms of a, a gap between Sunday and Monday, between this world of, of God's love and forgiveness here in this parable portrayed as somebody who forgives this really kind of cruel-hearted servant $6 billion, and the reality that we live on Monday, which feels like ungrateful people walk around sort of hurting each other. It's an extreme parable, but it, it gets at that reality that there's this disconnect between the, the world of Sunday and the world of church and the world of Jesus, which is all about love and forgiveness, and then the realities of life where that joy and that generosity and that gratefulness don't always play themselves out. I want to offer that fundamentally there are two different types of religion. One is what we'll call transactional, and the other is transformational. And by transactional, I mean there's an exchange. Uh, you know, a transaction at a bank. I do one thing, you give me something back. Uh, or in the marketplace, you know, I pay four fifty for my, you know, uh, blueberries and you give me the blueberries back. And a lot of times religion sort of becomes a spiritual transaction whereby I do something. I make a sacrifice to the gods. I give a certain percentage of my income. I go to church. I say the right prayers. Um, I do enough good deeds. And in response, the gods or God responds to me with health, wealth, or comfort, right? It becomes a, a transaction. And in a transactional faith, I don't actually have to change. I might have to uh, even forego something for a short time. I might have to, again, pay a cost. But I myself don't have to make a change. And maybe you've uh, seen examples of this in your life and others where, again, they walk out of church on Sunday saying they're forgiven, and this doesn't impact them how they forgive others. Or maybe you've experienced this where this becomes your way of interacting with church, where you view it as something you have to do in order to get something back 
from from God. Mm. So transactional religion can happen, though, in Christianity. Uh, It can happen in all religions, uh, even though we as Christians would say, well, Jesus put an end to sort of a sacrificial system of animals. Again, Christianity come flat where, again, there becomes this big gap. And again, we just go to church as if it's a spiritual bank. And this is what happened in the Middle Ages really crassly with the sale of indulgences where people basically paid money to get years out of a limbo or hell and, or purgatory. And Luther came along and said, no, no, this isn't, this isn't it. We can't, we can't have this view, this understanding of faith as a transaction. It's about a transformation. It's about allowing our hearts and souls to be open to the love of God. And, and Luther uses all sorts of metaphors like an iron, that, uh, like with faith, it's like an iron has been, been heated up and is infused now and glows brightly. Um, but what Luther wanted was, again, this religion to move away from transaction to transformation. But ultimately, the system and the, the faith that Luther sort of was advocating for, that would also um, become corrupted and become transactional. And in the, the 1900s, you know, Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, comes along and really attacks the Lutheran church from within. I mean, he's, he's standing within the tradition saying, this is cheap grace. This is cheap grace. We've succumbed to transactional religion again. So, uh, again, where have you seen this in your life and other people? Because it's prevalent and always needs to sort of be on guard against. Because the real religion, the true religion, is going to be transformational. And transformational is where the encounter we've had with the living God opens us, changes us uh, in terms of our, our heart, and then again, how we're going to view others. It changes our relationship with God, and it changes our relationship with with other people. It's, again, transactional. We can give up something, but we ourselves don't change. Transformational is where somehow that we have undergone uh, a catharsis, some humbling act, something that opens our hearts up to other people. And transactional is more common. It's sort of what we think of often, or at least cynically. But transformation does happen. And I think that's actually the most captivating stories are the ones in which we see transformation happening. Um, And I would actually argue that's part of the popularity of Hamilton. It's not just the the lyrics, but I think that story in the end of his transformation, Alexander Hamilton. Or my favorite uh, musical of all time is Les Mis and the, the way in which the bishop doesn't make his forgiveness of the main character, Jean Valjean, transactional, but really tells him, I have bought your soul for God with this silver in the beginning of the story, that somehow Jean Valjean has a new identity, a new life, a new story. Again, there's a transformation that happens there. My hope is is that the faith in this community is transformational, uh, is where we can experience that that presence and love of God in a way that does open us up, uh, not just to Sundays, but to the, to the rest of the week. And so I'd be curious in your life, when are times in your life where you have experienced that transforming love that really opened up your heart um, in a way you didn't even sort of almost have to think about? You just, you just instinctively then uh, had a sense of a, a new direction and, and a new way to treat other people. So today uh, we're thinking about the parable here of the unforgiving yet forgiven servant and what that might say about forgiveness in our lives, especially uh, God's power to transform us through the gift of 
forgiveness in Christ. In the second half of the podcast now, I want to go back and I want to go a little bit deeper in terms of theology and philosophy. I'm going to try this season for the first half of the podcast to uh, do a little bit more reflection, application level, even sort of really setting up for group discussion that we're going to do in our church. Second half, I want to gear a little bit deeper, uh, kind of the backdrop, philosophical, more underpinnings, maybe a little more speculative or, or even mystical. And so I want to uh, think about then transformation and transaction in light of eternity, in light of the cross and the empty tomb, and what it means for us. And I'll, I'll sort of start in, in a funny way. Can you imagine if I, as a pastor, there's a family sitting there. Imagine you're with somebody who's just lost a, a parent, a grandparent, huh? maybe a sibling, maybe even a spouse. And, uh, you know, everybody else is saying, oh, they're in a better place now. Um, or maybe if they suffered from some long illness, you know, they don't have to suffer anymore. But what if you just said to the person, well, now they don't have any more stinky farts. Or even, <laughs> even more, you know how they were always insecure about how they looked in red that they always had to wear for their job? That insecurity isn't driving the bus anymore. I said, you know how they always were just so hurt by the fact that his or her father never affirmed them the way they needed to? Well, now they know an eternal embrace and that hole in their heart is, is made, has been made whole. You know, so much of when we think about the afterlife, we think about it really in a transactional way. For most of us, heaven is the time and space where we uh, get back our sort of our mind and our soul the way it is, but our bodies have been restored to 21, but a 21-year-old body that isn't going to degrade. And so we, um, we haven't had the change. The only thing that's had to change about this is our physical appearance. And so we can go right on in heaven then with golfing or, uh, you know, playing baseball in Field of Dreams or fishing or cooking and eating and doing all the things we used to do. Now we just don't have to worry about calories or need ibuprofen uh, afterward. So most of us, again, have a very low conception of, of heaven as a place where the final transformation happens. Uh, but if you start to just think about it, think it through, you know, what would happen if all of us just ended up in heaven with fine healed bodies that couldn't degenerate, but we were all with the foibles and insecurities, pride and prejudices that we now have? Well, there's actually a TV show that kind of ran with this. It was called The Good Place, maybe five or six years old. And uh, it was, it sort of scored everybody in terms of their virtue. And the top scorers got to, after they died, be in this community together. And of course, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work at first because it seems like there's a totally selfish person there who got in accidentally. But it, moreover, it doesn't work because, as it turns out, uh, even really good people have enough ticks and quirks and imperfections that, given the test of eternity and life together, that it just, it just doesn't work. Turns out that if we're going to live forever and be with God, that we need a, a true healing of the hurts inside of us. We need a, a transformation where the perishable 
puts on the imperishable, where the mortal puts on the immortal, and our hearts are open to God and to really we become a vessel of God's love. Theologically, there is a way of thinking about the work of Christ that Christ's death is for the forgiveness of our sins. And the way that this often, though, gets uh, played out theologically is the the sense that uh, Jesus died for us so that then when an angry God looks at us, instead of seeing our sins that the just God abhors, instead the just God sees the smiling face of Jesus and then declares us righteous on account of Jesus' love for us. In another podcast, I've critiqued this way of thinking, but, I, but if you start to think about it in terms of transaction and transformation, this way of thinking is totally transactional in the sense of I never have to change. The, Jesus actually just stands in my place, and so the broken, messed up sinner that I am uh, gets to move on into eternity uh, without really ever having to undergo the depth of, of this, again, redemption that is uh, destined for me. Now, what, what often happens then, and this is going to be like a sort of a minute defense of Martin Luther, Luther often gets lumped into this camp that Luther, first of all, misunderstands Paul uh, in the first century Jewish world, and then secondly, that he overemphasizes forgiveness of sins. Um, well, yeah, it turns out we know a lot more about uh, first century Judaism than we did 500 years ago, but uh, also... Uh, when Luther writes about forgiveness, Luther and I think even Paul or other reformers, great sort of theologians, when they talk about forgiveness, they, they really mean resurrection. Um, and what I mean is that when they talk about forgiveness and you start to really read what they're, they're writing, for them, forgiveness isn't, again, this transaction, but it's God's work to uh, restart our story. It's not just God simply wiping the past clean, but it's God opening up a new chapter in our life, to God restoring the relationship to one of, of love and God as gift giver uh, to us. Uh, and, and so I, I want to be careful not to pin this on Luther, but I will say that Lutheran theologians have been part of you know, a broader stream that often includes Protestants, that have again walked down a line whereby Jesus' forgiveness uh, just means that your slate is clean rather than your heart has been set on fire. Um, and, and, you know, one of the most helpful theologians for me was a 20th century man named Gerhard Ferdi, who was working with Luther and, and as well as Paul in Scripture and really helped again tie together that notion of forgiveness and resurrection. Uh, and that what should ideally happen in the proclamation that we are forgiven is, is that we recognize our sins, and in so doing, we feel a grief. We put to death the old in us, and we open ourselves up to God's new chapter in our lives. That may not always happen, and it's another argument of then what should we do, but I'll just leave it for today and say that often our conception of sort of the the courtroom metaphor as sort of what the cross does, and then the empty tomb becoming sort of this afterlife in which we get to continue just with better bodies, that 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 theology is inherently transactional. And that scripture, I think, really points to a work of cross to, to bear our sins in them, but there is Uh, in exchange, 
that Christ is taking on our sin to give us his wholeness, his righteousness. And that there really is, again, an exchange that happens to the extent to which that we then become uh, little Christs, uh, those who are capable of being God's vessels of love, in part in this world, although still wrestling with the old. And finally then, heaven, death itself, becomes the event through which uh, the old entirely, the sin the sinner in each of us is fully put to death. So I don't recommend at the next funeral that you go up to your relative or friend who's dying and say, well, thank goodness we needed the old Eve or the old Adam and uh, Chuck or Sally to die. They were really annoying in this and this and this way, and they won't be anymore. I mean, that would obviously be a, a fairly uncom- in- uncompassionate, terrible thing to say. But the truth is that, yes, in, in death, there is something where the old is finally put to death and that the work of Christ will be brought to the fullness as we, uh, for eternity, then become the vessels of God's love for others. Well, I hope this second round through gave you some uh, more to think about, about what you think heaven is like and what that transformation in the end means for you and for your loved ones. And finally, I hope that can be of real comfort to know that the sorrow and the insecurities, the fears and sins and limitations of your loved ones are no more. And that's the power of the gospel and the work of Christ that is truly transformative in this life and in the next. Thanks be to God. Amen.